All right, book of Jeremiah, book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah. Now, I was possibly tonight going to spend the hour giving a detailed outline of the book, but it would become really tedious, and the outlining of the book is so hard anyway um, that it would be like, you know, Okay, here's point number one, and then we could look at the chat. Like, it would just be a, a long walk through, and because the book is already not in chronological order, and there's all the problems with the organization of the book. So what we're going to do is, as we work through Jeremiah, I'll kind of just offer up, here's what this section would be, here's what we would call this, and then you can just kind of formulate and make your, like on a separate page, you can just say Jeremiah outline, and then as I give each section, you can just fill it in and then do it that way. Does that make sense? Instead of trying to explain it. I could give a simple outline, break it down into three or four parts, uh, but even some of those three or four parts, I guess for simplification is great, but then you don't really see all of the issues surrounding uh, the book. So, well... Yeah, the Bible dictionary kind of gives a simple one. That's like a 4.1. There are others give it a 3. So there's all those different ways. So I'm, I'm just going to do away with all of that. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 1. Uh, the goal for this particular study would be really verses 4 to 19. Um, is really, but we'll, we'll try to look at each section. I will try to offer an outline. If we, uh, and if you were to outline Jeremiah, you could do it a couple of ways. You could just say Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You could just kind of say introduction, and then you could go 4 through 19, the call of the prophet, right? But we're just going to say chapter 1, verses 1 through 19, the call of the prophet, and just make the entire chapter basically the call of Jeremiah. That's probably the best way to do so. So you can just call the entire chapter that. I think that's a, a good way to look at it. Now... And typically, now th- this will be somewhat controversial for some people. I-, I hope it's not. I hope it's not controversial for anyone here. But it-, it goes against maybe. We know that in the world of preaching, all right, in the world of preaching, there are different philosophies, and everyone thinks their philosophy about preaching is obviously not only is it the right one. They believe it's the biblical one, right? They believe this is the way you must do it, and if you don't do it this way, it's wrong. Right. So, for example, especially within many Reformed churches and many conservative churches, um, there was a major shift, and a lot of people went with, we've got to get to verse-by-verse verse exposition of the Scriptures, verse-by-verse verse exposition of the Scriptures, and that is the right way to do it, and if you don't do it that way, it is wrong. Now, I think there's nothing wrong with verse-by-verse verse exposition. Obviously, I love it. There's a lot of benefits from it. There's no, there's no, I mean, because you know exactly where you're going to be the next week. You're going to know exactly where you're going to be the next week. For, for the preacher's perspective, it's easy. You just, all you got to do is spend your time reading the book, thinking about the book, reading things about the book, and you're pretty much ready to go. You don't have to try to reinvent the wheel each week, right? You, you know where you're going. You don't have to try to come up with a new series every six weeks. So there's a lot of benefits from it, right? A lot of benefits. But there is a negative about it. And sometimes church members don't want to admit this, but there's just truth to this, right? You start a book, say Jeremiah, Isaiah, doesn't matter, Romans, and you're going to be in that book three or four years. 
no matter how hard the pastor tries to do a review, right? We all know six months in, three months in, four months in, the pastor can stand and ask a question that may have been repeated 65 times and guess what? There's a high probability is going to happen. No, no, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to remember. And then you sit down and you just go, well, that was a waste of four months of my life, right? Like you just start questioning. And, and, but in some ways you can understand, right? Because it's been, it's been four months, six months since we looked at chapter one, right? It's four to six months. It, it, it's hard to remember, correct? Now, the pastor may say, I mentioned it in every review and every sermon and they're all online, but the point is, it's still four to six months. That's a long, and by the time you get two years in, do you think anyone even, do you think anyone even remembers how chapter one or two even connects to where you are? I mean, nobody remembers. I mean, it's all fallen apart. It's all fallen apart. So in theory, everyone can say, we do verse by verse preaching. We do exposition and we can all feel godly and feel better about ourselves. But the reality, we've, we, sometimes we've lost the plot. I don't, I don't want to do a, away with that kind of preaching ever. But at the same time, I do see the problem with it. There is a problem with that kind of preaching because it's just everyone loses. Nobody remembers anything. I'm like, really? It's just, you're just like, oh, we're in Romans 5. I have no idea what that has to do with Romans 1, 2, 3, or 4, because that was 16 years ago. I don't even remember. I mean, I hope so. I mean, I, right. I try, I try to do that. Well, I mean, that's why my reviews are always typically so long is because I would always try to do that. But it's just very difficult. So, um, so there's always an inherent danger in that kind of preaching anyway, right? And just remember, I know this is going to come as a shock. Does the Bible tell you how to preach? Does it say this is the way you're supposed to preach? No, I mean, even if you look at some of their sermons, I mean, they're only like, what? It takes you about five minutes to read it, right? To read the entire Sermon on the Mount. How long? 15 minutes, 20 minutes? All right, so... Clearly, and, and, and that, uh, so you say, well, Josh, Jesus, he had to be the greatest preacher. No, is anyone going to preach like that? I mean, no. I mean, so we know that there isn't a really clear, some people will try to take certain things that maybe when Paul preached or, or but you can't really, div, really say there's a div, or divinely ordained way to preach. What's most important is however you preach, what should be the goal? accurately handle the word of God and teach the word of God. And I think you should hopefully get the people not just passively listening, but actively involved. I really think that that's very important. But I don't think that there's a scripture that says, this is the right way, this is the wrong way, okay? And so there's already a danger in verse by verse because everyone can lose the plot. When you come to a book like Jeremiah or a book like Isaiah, Isaiah is how many chapters? No, Jeremiah is 52. Isaiah 66. 60, can you imagine working through 66 chapters where everyone would be by chapter 40? Well, first half the congregation probably wouldn't even be alive anymore, right? I mean, like, I mean it would take forever, yes? The, the disconnect. Well, then when you come to Jeremiah, what, what, what problem does the book of Jeremiah present? Well, not only is it long, 
In fact, it's, it's, I think, longer than Isaiah as far as content and verses, right? But remember, what we ta- uh, Jeremiah is not even necessary. It's not even chronological order. And remember, it's all mixed together. Sometimes it's poetry. Sometimes it's historical narrative. Sometimes it's Jer- uh, Jeremiah just giving his own personal. It's all just a mess. Well, trying to do that verse by verse is going to just be... It's going to be. So what my, my approach here is not so much trying to go verse by verse, not because I'm against it. I just think with Jeremiah, it would be almost more. You, I think you have to try to take a different approach. So we're going to try to take the approach and a much more. Well, each each sermon is supposed to be a start and finish with no real continuation to the next one and no review of the of the previous. I'm going to I'm trying to get away from the whole review and doing all of that. Um, but we're going to try to knock it out within a three-month period, mainly to do what? Try to get the big, the, the, the grasp of it, and hopefully, because it's in a short period of time, see what? How it all connects or fits together. So that's the goal. So tonight is chapter 1, and uh, let's just see what happens, all right? Jeremiah chapter 1, let's start in verses 1 through 3. And we can call this the introduction, all right? Jeremiah chapter 1, and let's just start right here in verse 1, all right? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah. Now, stop right here. I know I know. I say I'm going to go quickly, and I'm already going to stop. But if you have a Bible dictionary, look up the entry for Jeremiah. Not the book of, but the person, Jeremiah. You're going to see, I think there's nine people Name Jeremiah, I think there's nine. Now, that's a number, so you know what that means. There's a high probability I'm wrong. Oh, there's nine. Look at that. I get another right. Everyone, stop. I want to I want applause. Okay, all right. All right, yay. All right, okay, good. All right, there, there, Bobby's like, whatever. He doesn't even care. All right. <laughs> got like Got lucky. I'll look at that. Now we believe in luck here. Okay, all right. All right. Okay. Jeremiah. Now you can find the correct Jeremiah who wrote the book of Jeremiah. Do you find him? Okay, he's number nine, right? Okay. And does it give the meaning of his name? Does it give the meaning of his name in the Bible dictionary? It may or may not. You can look it up in your study Bible, Stephen. The Lord hurls, right? Okay, meaning throw something, right? Right? Okay, like he throws something. Okay, what? Okay, all right. He throws something. What, what are you talking about? Okay, all right. That's, all right, whatever. Okay. okay. <laughs> That's a colloquial use of the term, right? What is that? Okay, all right. Okay. Uh, Stephen, what do you have in your study Bible? <laughs> okay, everyone just disregard everything you're hearing from the audience tonight, Okay. That was it, that throws, hurls, right? Okay, all right. Um, another source says this, all right? Jeremiah, the name, it equals the Lord exalts or the Lord throws down. The Lord exalts or the Lord throws down. I know that that's really, you're like, wait a minute, which one is it? But there's some, there's something, it seems, that the name has something to do with the Lord either throwing exalting, tearing down, something along those lines. And we find that to be somewhat interesting. Go down to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9. 
Right, right. So it's uncertain, right? Right. So we don't really know, but if if it has any connection to exalting or throwing down in any way, shape, or form, look at Jeremiah one nine. This is the reason it's just it's somewhat interesting. All right. Look at verse nine. Everybody ready? Jeremiah one nine. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, pull down, to destroy, throw down, to build, and to plant. Meaning, if the name has some uncertain and we don't know which way it goes, and a roundabout way, Jeremiah's ministry seems to have contradictory things he's going to do, right? I mean, look at it. Uh, To root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. Almost a contradictory approach. Why do you think in some ways it's contradictory? Okay. All right, you can say that. I, I, the reason I'm going with contradictory is because to build seems to be very opposite to throw down or to tear down, right? But I think the point, well, I think the point is, is whenever the word of God is preached, does it always have the same effect in all people? No, it does not, right? It does not. Some people will love it. Some people will hate it. Some people will accept it. Some people will reject it. So I just think that there's kind of a, just an interesting thing going on there. Now you can look up 15 different sources and probably get 20 different ideas of what his name possibly means, but it is just very interesting that at least some sources go that direction and then we see it right there in Jeremiah chapter 1, all right? So go, go back to Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 as we kind of look at the introduction. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priest... And they were in Anathoth uh, in the land of Benjamin. We talked a lot about um, some of those things, Benjamin being a city of the priests and Anathoth, but we, we won't get into all of that. Verse 2, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. Now, probably, when, so when we look at this introduction, if you just want to, if you're trying to kind of make a, a, a kind of a, a basic outline, we have, obviously, this is the introduction, and in the introduction, we have, obviously, uh, Jeremiah mentioned, right, that this is the book of Jeremiah. He's, basically, we can see the author identified, right? Agreed? Uh, that we know who his father was, right? The son of Hilkiah. We know where they are at, Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, all right? And then we have this, to whom the word of the Lord came. Now, this is an important concept because, once again, it reminds us of of this. A prophet of God is to deliver what word? The word which they have received from God. They are to deliver God's word. They are not to deliver what? Their opinion, their thoughts, their desires, their their wants, but they are to deliver the words that God has given them. Right, and so that and and guess what? That's very important in this book. Right, I can't say I think it, the concept is always important, but it's very important in this book. 
And the reason it's important in this book is because Jeremiah has to deliver the words which God gives him, and those words, from a human perspective, are not going to be, I mean, from a human perspective, you would be like, wait a minute, maybe we need to reevaluate the message, right? Because we know that these words are going to be rejected, right? So in other words, from a human perspective, you would be like, do we have any converts? How many converts does Jeremiah get? Zero, all right? Wait a minute, or do the people, do they like it? No. Am I being persecuted, threatened, and killed? Uh, Yeah, okay, wait a minute. Maybe we need a committee here to come up with some new words, right? Some better words. So once again, we cannot, you don't change the words because of other people's reaction, and, and this is very important. You don't even change the words based on your own reaction, right? Because, look, we all know that you can, because Christians are good at saying, well, the world won't receive the words of God. We're always, we're always quick to know how quickly other people reject God's word, right? But we have to look to our own lives to see in what ways we reject God's word. Because do we always like them? And what do we have a tendency to do when we don't like them? Ignore them, explain them away, or basically say, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do, and I don't care. Right? We, we always convince ourselves that we will be the ones who receive it. But the church for 2,000 years has demonstrated we're, we're no more excited to receive it than sometimes the world is. All right? But I just think that's an important phrase. So if we look at the introduction, we have the author identified, Jeremiah, right? We have his father identified, his family ties. He's the son of Hilkiah. We know where they are, right? They were in Anathoth and the land of Benjamin. We have the words given to him. They're God's words. To whom the word of the Lord came. Now we have the time stamp. We have the time frame. What do we have? In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, and the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. Meaning, it's telling you where the word of God, when it starts coming to him, all the way to when it stops. Right? In other words, why is that important? That Jeremiah was going to be receiving the words of God throughout that entire period, yes? Right? Meaning that his message was to constantly be those words. Does that sound good? All right, that, so there's kind of the, intro, you can break the introduction. You know, I, don't lo- I love to try to kind of throw out the ideas so you to structure it for yourself. So we will call this entire chapter, we're calling this the call of Jeremiah. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is the introduction. And the introduction, what do we have? Let's just get summarized the basic parts of the introduction. We have the author identified. Who is? Jeremiah. We have his father identified or his family ties. He's the son of Hilkiah the priest, right? right? We have the place where he's from. Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, all right? Then we have the words of God given to Jeremiah, right? Okay, uh, to whom the words of the Lord came. And then we have the time stamp from the days of Josiah all the way to the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. All right, those are some basic, 
Basic facts, basic information. We have a clear application there. The clear application is the prophet is to deliver God's word no matter if it's received or not. And it's easy for us to criticize other people not receiving it. You need to be more worried about your reception of it. Everybody wants God's word until they don't, right? Everybody wants to hear God's word until they disagree with it. And what do we have a tendency? What's the go-to game when we disagree with it? What, what's the number one game that all Christians play when we don't like God's word? That's not what it meant. If you listen to a sermon, you don't like what I say, then magically, guess whose interpretation is right? Yours. Whose interpretation is wrong? Now, guess what? If you can constantly get around God's word by saying it's not what it meant, (laughs) you're no better off than the world. The world is just more honest. They're just like, I reject it outright. We're like, no, I don't reject it. I just know it better than you. So then it's just becomes a kind of a meaningless exercise, all right? Now, there's the introduction. Now, from the introduction, verses 1 through 3, what do we have starting in verse 4? We'll call, we'll call this his calling, his calling, all right? The calling of Jeremiah from 4 to what? We'll go to 10. We'll go to 4 to 10, the calling of Jeremiah, all right? Now, we can break this down in many different ways, but let's look at what we find in the calling of Jeremiah. Look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. Now, he's already, we already know he's been given God's word. Now, here, in a sense, is the first message he receives, right? Here's his calling, right? So, Jeremiah, wherever he is, at a specific time, God speaks to him directly. Remember, at this point, God speaks to people directly, right? Comes to him, and look at the, and, and you, can, you can break down his calling in a lot of different ways. I'm just going to pull certain phrases from it. I'm going to pull certain phrases from it, okay? The first thing I see in this calling is this word. Just look carefully. Before I form thee in the belly, I knew thee. The first thing I see in Jeremiah's calling is God's knowledge. Is God's knowledge. I knew thee before you were even conceived. Right? We see the knowledge of God, do we not? And we know, uh, the, what, and, and um, did you have something? Yeah, and what and I mean, we don't have time to go do a full theological workup of this, but what do we refer, what's the theological term for God's knowledge? Omniscience. And what do we mean by omniscience? He's all-knowing. He knows all things actual and possible. He knows all things. There's times that's comforting. There's times that's disturbing. Well, we're definitely, definitely this is where this is going, all right? But clearly, he knows him, and we'll just focus on that. He knows Jeremiah, and when does he know him? It says right there, just look at the phrase. Before he was even formed, where? Okay, in, uh, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest out of the womb, then he's going to do something else. Just know God's knowledge. God's all-knowing. He knows everything. Now remember, just always remember, we don't have time to get into it. Just remember, 
there, you can find maybe great comfort in that, and you can find troubling questions that arise from it, right? I mean, so many troubling questions that I, it's hard. So sometimes Christians think that we'll say, hey, just remember, God knows all things, and you're supposed to go, oh, I feel so much better, right? I don't know exactly how that is supposed to work, but, but yeah, just because people get a little theological answer, they think they have an answer, but in some cases it creates another problem. But clearly we see God's knowledge. The second thing here, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. All right, so the second word is sanctified. All right, now the word sanctified, its basic meaning is what? To set apart. Now, we can't go into a full theological study on sanctification, but there is lots of discussions about sanctification, and lots of them are so messed up. So we have to at least do a little bit of work here, all right? So when we think of sanctification, all right, we tend to break sanctification down into three stages, all right? Now, so, now, before I look at these three stages, so that you know, some break down sanctification this way. Positional sanctification, experiential sanctification, and ultimate sanctification. That's how some people break it down. Positional experiential, ultimate. I'm not a fan of that breakdown, all right? I'm going to look at sanctification in three stages, past, present, future. Now, when you get into a discussion about sanctification in the past, there's disagreements here, all right? Most of the articles, when they talk about past sanctification, where do they say the past sanctification started? In most articles, most churches, when they talk of past sanctification, where do they believe it occurred? No, almost nobody believes that, right? No. In salvation. In your salvation in the past, you were sanctified, you were set apart. Okay? I looked at, I don't even know how many articles today, and I was like, I was waiting for someone to, to take it further back, and I'm like, why are they starting there? Why are they starting there? Because I don't think, and then, the, so that's the past, right? Some, t- some starts the past at salvation, right? Then the present, we understand the present right now, and then obviously we understand the future and eternity, okay? So the really, nobody has, now, the, where do you think the disagreements are? The disagreements are, how do we understand the past one? Nobody, well, 99% of Christianity agrees on the present one, right? Well, other, they all agree that it's happening. There is not agreement on how it's happening. Remember, there's two views of sanctification in the present. Monergistic or synergistic, right? If it's monergistic, God is doing. If it's synergistic, we play a part. Now, if it's monergistic, it raises a million questions. If it's synergistic, it still raises a question. All right, but, but there's that. And then everyone's good with the future one. Because the future one is, there'll be a time I'll be before God and there'll be no more sinful nature and I'll be completely sanctified, right? All right, so the, and, and even, even the, the present one, there's still, I think there's two stages in the present one. Because in the present one, there's two realities, right? There's my positional sanctification and there's my practical sanctification. The two are never the same. I am always sanctified positionally, 
right? Practically, it's a mess, right? So even, even there, there's all kinds of discussions. But for this, look at the text. When was Jeremiah sanctified? Before he was conceived. Before he was conceived. How was he sanctified before he was conceived? How is sanctification being used here? That God, before the foundation, before, well, we'll just go with the text. Okay, well, clearly, okay. Before Jeremiah was even conceived, God already knew him and already had done what? That person. I'm setting him apart. Before he's even conceived. That once he is conceived, and at an appropriate time, he's going to do what? He's going to call him. Right? So, we have God's knowledge, God's eternal sanctifying, right? Sanctifying in eternity past, right? Because, I mean, even before he's born, and as long as God, if God knew him before he was born, how long had God known him? Forever. So, therefore, if he... If he sanctified him, he sanctified him in eternity past, right? And then in, in time, he would call him, all right? So make sure we understand. I believe that then this eternal sanctification is connected to which doctrine? Election, right? Because in election, what has God done? Chosen before the foundation. Set us Apart, right? I mean, he said, obviously, he's, it's a distinguishing mark, right? Okay, so he has sanctified him before he's even, cons- I mean, that's, I mean, look, I'm not making that up. That's not, that's not, that's, that's right there in the text, right? In fact, I put in my notes, uh, for our purpose, uh, the sanctification spoken of here about Jeremiah is one that happened when? And then I was going to ask the question, and you're all supposed to tell me. Well, just read the X words. Before he was born, I sanctified thee. So it, when it comes to his calling, we have God's knowledge, we have God's sanctifying, and then we have what? What's the next word? Ordain thee a prophet unto the nations. He was ordained. All right? And what does ordained mean? He was appointed. All right? What would be another word? Ordained. Appointed, commissioned. He's a, and what is he ordained, appointed to? To be a prophet to the nations. So the plan was put in place when? Eternity passed because God knew. God had sanctified him, setting apart, and then he ordained him to a specific purpose, which is to be a prophet. Now, obviously we then can look at how this is applicable to us because there's a very much a similarity to us, right? Let's look at two, three passages really fast. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Everybody there? We all know what verse I'm going to, right? Romans 8, verse 29. Speaking of God, for whom he did 
foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now, here we go. The foreknowledge, how long, how God has known us for how long? Forever. And not only did he know, he predestinated. He knew us and what does it mean to predestinate? To determine beforehand in Jeremiah's life. Did God know him before he was uh, conceived? Did he sanctify him before he was born? Meaning he set him apart for what purpose? For a purpose that whom has predetermined? God. Jeremiah did not predetermine it. God predetermined it, right? Okay, and then, where did I put my Bible? Here we go. What's next? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, moreover whom he did predestinate, he called, and he called, he justified. Meaning, those who God predetermined, he called. That calling is, remember there's two kinds of calling? The general and the effectual. The general call is for everybody. The effectual call is for those whom he foreknew and for those he predestinated. Then he calls them. And how do we know there's a separate calling? Well, because he justifies. If the, if the general call that goes to everyone determined everyone being, you would have to believe in what? Universalism and everyone would have to be saved. This is the special call because those he calls, he justifies. He justifies. And then not only does he justify, he glorifies. Everybody see it? It's all the work of God from where? From beginning to end. Where does it start? In eternity past in God's knowledge. And in God's predestinating or choice. And in God choosing, then he calls. Then he calls, he justifies, and he justifies, he glorifies. Same kind of process there in Jeremiah's life, right? Okay, and then go to Ephesians chapter 1. Same concept's going to show up again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of his children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of whose will? His will to the praise and glory of His grace wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved in whom we have redemption. And then, well, we can see all of the rest. Okay? Same concepts apply there as well. And then, go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Matthew 28, 16, and you know what's there. What's in Matthew 28, 16 and following? We call it the Great Commission. And he says to go into all the world, preach, right? Or teach, baptize, and teach to obey. All right, meaning then that not only, look at Jeremiah's life, right? God knew him before he was conceived, right? He was set apart before he was born, right? He was ordained to a specific test. All of that occurred before he was even born. In our life, 
God knew us before anything even existed. He predestinated us before anything existed. He called us. He justified us. And he has commissioned us just as well to ministry. Make sense? All right. Very simple. Now, let's go back to Jeremiah. Oh, I got to hurry, got to hurry, got to hurry. Trying to do this in one standalone sermon is not easy. Okay, all right. Now, so we have God's calling of Jeremiah, and we see, see this play out in some very specific words, right? Knowledge, sanctification, and ordained. Or you can just put knew thee, sanctified thee, ordained thee. You can put it that way. And what was Jeremiah's response to this calling? Then he said, I, ah, Lord, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I'm a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. All right? Now, a lot of people try to, you know, take this and make this very directly applicable to us. It's applicable in what way? It's applicable in this way. We are called to go and teach, right? Everyone here is a minister. Whether we like it or not, you are called into ministry, right? So you have a ministry. Now, that ministry doesn't mean you have to preach to anyone and everyone. It just means you look for every opportunity to minister to people who's directly around you in some way. It can be encouraging. It can be serving. It can be teaching. It can be helping. Whatever the case may be, right? We're we're called to do the same thing. And whose words are we supposed to share? God's. Meaning, it's not up for us to come up with what, what words to say, because the words we're supposed to say were given to us where? In Scripture. I know some Christians take this to mean, and they borrow from Matthew and from some of the Gospels, that whenever you're in a situation, God is, God's going to give you the words to say. Okay, Listen, that was, for the, that was for the apostles. This is for Jeremiah. We cannot take that promise to ourselves because if it worked that way, then guess what? Would a pastor ever have to prepare for a sermon? No. God would just give me the words. How, Bible college would be a breeze. God would just give me the answers. It doesn't work that way, right? Now, he has given us the words, but they're, they're right here, okay? Um, he goes... Uh, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Simply meaning, it's kind of a simplistic way to say, Your mouth now is my instrument, and what are you to speak? My words. Now, in Jeremiah's situation, God gives him the very words. In our situation, God has given us the word and we're to read it and study it and proclaim it, right? So it's not, uh, yeah, all the, when people claim that that happens. And then verse 10, see, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. So in this calling, what do we have? We have the nature, we could call this the nature of the calling, which is eternity past, right? We have the elements of the calling. Here's my word, go speak them, right? We have the encouragement that, hey, I'm going to deliver you, I'm going to be with you. And then we have really the purpose of it, and which is to do what? 
Root out, pull down, destroy, throw down, build, and plant. You say, how does all of that occur? All of those things occur by doing what? All of those things occur by doing what? Speaking God's word. So all he's supposed to do is speak God's word. So he speaks God's word and what will happen sometime? Something's going to be tore down. Something's going to be rooted up. What other times what's going to happen? Something's going to be built up and something's going to be planted. Right. Sometimes it'll be destruction. Sometimes it'll be overthrowing. It's always going to have its different take, right, on how it's going to work. Who, who does it? Who, who determines how it's going to work out? God, ultimately, right? Not us. We have no control over that. Right? So there we have it. Right? Is that good? Right? We have the introduction. We broke the introduction down, right? We have the author. We have the family, right? We have the words being given. Uh, we have the timeline. Yes? Right? We have all of that. Then we have Jeremiah's calling. We have knowledge. We have sanctification. We have ordination, right? Uh, we have the Nature of the calling, uh, we have the word, all of those. We have its purpose, we have all of those elements to it. Yes? All right, good. Any questions? No? Are we good? All right, that gives us about 15 minutes to look at the next two sections. The next section starts in verse 11. Probably goes down to verse 16. What would we call verses 11 to 16? All right, I'm just going to call these visions, right? Right, because he sees a number of things, does he not? And we're going to call them visions because he says he sees them, and seeing them, obviously God is showing him something, and you can, you can, I'm assuming he's not showing him physical things. Maybe he is, but he's seeing something. So we're just going to refer to them as visions, okay? All right, we're going to take them apart. Everybody ready? Verse 11, all right? Verse 11. Here we go. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. I see a rod of an almond tree. Right? The NIV has it at what way? The branch of an almond tree, all right? So the focus is on the almond tree, the branch of an almond tree, but he sees an almond tree, right? Okay, and then, verse 12, then said the Lord unto me, or hang on, what seest thou? And uh, Jeremiah says, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. And then, immediately, he goes to a different vision in what, verse 13, correct? What in the world is going on with the almond tree? What is happening there? Okay. 
Now, I am going to throw out a hypothesis here, right? I'm going to throw out a theory here. And I do not know how well this is going to work. There is the concept that what's happening here is God is using a play, of, play on words. And the only way to see it is to look in the Hebrew, right? Because there's two Hebrew words that are very similar here, very similar, and there's kind of a play on it, all right? So first, I'm going to give you the two Hebrew words. If you have the Blue Letter Bible app, this is a good time to pull, uh, open it up, all right? First, uh, if you have the Blue Letter Bible app, go to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. I'm going to go to verse 11. I'm going to go to the antilinear. All right? And the first thing we want to look at is almond tree, of an almond tree, right? Because whether the rod, still, it's the branch, is still attached to the almond tree, right? So we're going to focus on the almond tree here, right? And it's this... Okay, wait, I'm listening to myself now. Hang on. I had the Spreaker app open to be able to see comments. Now I'm going to have to close it. So if you post a comment, I can't see it now. All right, here we go. Here we go, almond tree. Everybody see the Hebrew word there? It's this Hebrew word. Strong's H-247, shakade, shakade. Shakade, shakade. All right, shakade. You can see... The pronunciation there, shakade, everybody see that? It's, you, what does it mean? Almond. almond or almond tree, right? It's outlined in biblical usage. Almond trees, almond, almond tree, right? Okay, it's almond tree. But remember, what is the word? Shakade. Now, go to Jeremiah 31, 28. Jeremiah 31, 28. Jeremiah 31, 28. And look at the will I watch. The phrase will I watch. Right? Look at that word. Do you see it? It's this Hebrew word. Strong's H8245. Shakad. 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 Are they very similar? Very similar. This means to wake, to watch, awake, be alert, to keep watch, be wakeful over, to be wakeful to wake. Right? Everybody got that? All right. So one is the almond tree is what word? Shakad. To watch is shakad or shakad, right? Very similar words. They look very similar. Here is the theory. You ready? Okay, do I? That was Jeremiah 31, 28 and Jeremiah 1, 11. You got those two? All right. Now, here is the theory. The Lord began the first vision by asking Jeremiah, what seest thou? Almond trees were and still are common in Israel. When Jeremiah gave his answer, an almond tree... The Lord said he was correct and used a play on words to give the meaning of the vision. An almond tree is what word in Hebrew? Shakad. In Hebrew, and the verb meaning to watch is shakad, right? God, so, I, so, so when Jeremiah said, I see, 
God said, uh, basically, what is what I'm doing? I'm watching to make sure my word is fulfilled. Every time Jeremiah would see an almond tree, he could be reminded that God keeps his word. So in other words, what he is saying is, you see the almond tree? You see that? Well, I am in a sense watching to ensure that my words will be fulfilled. Does that make sense? Do you see that? It's the almond tree. In a sense, I'm watching to ensure. So look at exactly how the, it, it's, it, it's spoken of here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of almond. And said the Lord unto me, thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. In other words, you see that, you can watch that, you can look at that, because I'm watching and seeing, so I will perform it. It's a play on words. That's a theory. I'm not being dogmatic. That's a theory. Nothing else makes any sense. And the reason nothing else makes any sense is what does God not do here? <laughs> it doesn't explain anything. Yeah, I, I, I see an almond tree. You see it? Okay, hey, I'm going to do it. Well, what do you mean? Do what? You're gonna do, what are you going to do? The only thing we can think of is it's a play on words. It's a play on words. Right? So everybody remember the two Hebrew words? All right, uh, Jeremiah 1.11, the almond tree is shakad, to watch is shakad. Almost a, and if those, if almond trees, I don't know, haven't been to Israel, but if they are, or were at that time, very prevalent and around all over the place, right? If that's true, then basically every time Jeremiah saw an almond tree, what could he know? God was watching, and God was going to do what? What did he say right there in the text? I'm going to hasten my word to perform it. Oh, please, now, how does the NIV say it? Watching. Watching, and the word watch is? Shakad, and the almond tree is? Shakad. You see the shakad, I will... Shakad, the word, right? I will, I will, I'm watching it. I'm going to, I'm going to perform it. I'm going to make it happen. Oh, there we go. Okay, so here we go. That, uh, the Bible dictionary just said the almond tree symbolizes dependability of God's word. So for, in a sense, every time now Jeremiah would see the almond tree, he could do what? God's, God's going to perform his word. God's going to perform his word. God's, I, now, this is one of those, we have, to, we have to guess. I don't like guessing. I don't like speculating. But nothing else makes any sense. There's no explanation. The only explanation is what? See the almond tree? I'm going to watch and perform my word. Now, the, that makes, it, it, and I'm assuming the reason it's not really explained, as I guess if you see it in Hebrew, it would, you'd be like, whoa, those are very similar, and then it would make a little bit more sense. Uh, in English, we don't see it necessarily, right? The dependability of God's word. 
All right, does, does everyone like that? Everybody's supposed to go, ooh, that's really good. Ooh, no, no, nothing, not, I'm yeah, just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, okay, all right, that's all I got, okay? I was hoping somebody would think it was good. All right, okay, I was hoping, all right. So, we've got the almond tree, all right? Everybody got that? That's the first vision. What's the second vision? And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time saying, what seest thou? Please note that see, watch kind of concept, right? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is towards the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north an evil should break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set every one of of his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah." And I will utter my judgment against them, touching all their wickedness who have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods and worship the works of their own hands. Now he's going to bring who from the north? He's going to bring someone from the north, right? All right. I'll give you just one commentary. You ready? The second vision God showed Jeremiah was a seething pot about to run over. The pot faced towards north. This meant God was going to use an enemy invasion from the north and inflict pain like that of the overflow of a scalding pot. Babylon was located to the east. However, to avoid travel through the Arabian desert, the Babylonians would attack Judah from the north by way of Syria. Verse 15 describes how kings would come to Jerusalem and lay siege on the city along with all the cities of Judah. Multiple kings would join the attack because the Babylonians would bring with them the armies of the kingdoms they had subdued. The point is that the Lord would be the one to call the families of the kingdoms to invade Judah and lay siege to its cities. He would use these foreign nations as his instruments of judgments. And he gave the reason he was going to do this. What are the reasons listed as why God was going to bring judgment against Judah using the Babylonians? Okay, let's break them down. Let's break them all down. Number one, wickedness. That's just probably a general description of their own godliness, just kind of a general description. Yes, Wickedness. What's the second? Forsaking God. Turning their back on God. Forsaking God. Number three? Idolatry. They burned incense to other gods. This is idolatry. And then number four? They worshipped what they could do. They looked to their own works. Their own accomplishments. Now, let me make it very clear. These, how many things is that? Four. Those four things have been true of the people of God throughout entire history. I don't care if it was Judah. I don't care if it was Israel. I don't care if it was north, south, east, west, church, no church. This has always been true of us. One, general wickedness. Is there not a general wickedness in us? Yes. Why? Because we have a... A sinful nature that is wicked, right? The heart is wicked, yes? Right, so that's a general thing. Second, 
Forsake God. How do we forsake God? Well, we forsake God when we always turn to other things, right? We, we forsake God in what we trust. We forsake God in what we focus on. We forsake God all the time. Do we not constantly forsake God for something else, right? We constantly do that. Number three, idolatry. Idolatry is such, the, I mean, we constantly put other things before God. And remember, what, what, idolatry comes from where? Within, and it's not, listen, just make sure we understand this because I, I, I really believe this. Remember, we had a whole discussion about how I kind of redefine idolatry. We typically see idolatry as placing other things before God, right? But I believe idolatry really isn't the placing of other things before God. It's placing ourself before God, and then we look to other things for what purpose? To please self. The real idol is what? So we always say, no, no, don't make that an idol. No, no, no. Don't make yourself the idol. Why do you want the other things? They please you. Right? They please you. Okay? And then the next thing, worship the work of their own hands. What do we focus on? What do we take pride in? We do. Even within Christianity, what do we focus so much on? What God has done for us or what we do, right? We turn Christianity into, I believed, I stopped sinning. And then sometimes we'll give God lips of, well, I mean, God did it. But we take the credit for what we do, right? It's just over and over and over and over, all right? That's, I mean, we, we can all see that, all right? And then verses 17 to 19 is the next section. So we have the introduction, we have the calling, we have the visions, and then we have verse 17 and 19. What do you want to call this? Thou therefore gird up the loins and arise, speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a a defensed city, an iron pillar, brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. This is God's promise of protection. And you cannot cite that promise of protection for yourself. All right? Jeremiah was going to be protected for his entire ministry, yes? I mean, they could have killed him at any point. Did they, did, 40 years of ministry, they all hate him. Why didn't they kill him in day two? Because God was protecting him, right? All right. But you can't go claim that guy, like, hey, I'm going to go preach here and nobody's going to hurt me. Well, you don't know that, right? <laughs> in other words, there is a protection. We can say that obviously God gave him a specific promise and God fulfilled that promise until the promise was over. Because if, if tradition is right, he goes down to Egypt with the remnant and the remnant turns on him and stones him to death. So, you know, but in other words, the protection was only for an appointed time. And then that appointed time ended. And there we, there is Jeremiah chapter one. Any questions? All right, just briefly. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That is the introduction. What do we see in the introduction? The author, family, the words from God, and then timing. Right? Okay? 
Then the calling of Jeremiah covers verses 4 to 10. What do we see in the calling? We see God's knowledge. We see God's sanctifying. And we see God ordaining. What else do we see? Okay, we see the, uh, uh, we'll see uh, Jeremiah's objection or concerns with the call, right? I forgot to mention that when I, some of these I just try to let you work out, right? I don't like to give you everything. Do you see his objection? I'm a child, right? I, I, can't, I can't speak, all right? Then what do we have? Okay, then I, we could say God's assurance, but okay, we, we, that, that's fine. Now, what do we have? We have God's, we have the nature of, I guess we can call it the nature of the call. What would y'all want to call it? When we say the nature of the call, what do we mean by it? The nature of the call is God put his words, do I? Okay, well, that, that goes back to up to the part. So let's go through this again. Let's go through this again. All right, let's go through this again. All right, so in the call, we have verses 4 to 10, yes? All right, in verses 4 to 10, we have the calling. The first thing we can say, we'll call this the nature of the call. Does that make sense? All right, we'll call it the nature of the call. And what are the elements of the nature of the call? God's knowledge, God's sanctifying, and God ordaining, right? And that includes then his knowing beforehand, sanctifying beforehand, and ordaining beforehand. Yes? Okay, then we have the objection to the call. Wait, Lord, I I can't do this, right? Then what do we have? God's answer to the objection, right? Which is what? I'm going to give you the words. I'm going to give you the words to speak, all right? And then what else do we have? The purpose of the call, and that is to do what? Yeah, in verse 10. We could, we, could, we could organize it that way if that feels better, all right? And I may have stated that, I may have stated that incorrectly the first time. Not necessarily incorrectly. I just threw out a lot of different ideas for you to try to work it out. All right, there you go. Now, here's for those who are listening and participating in the Bible study exercise. Your first assignment today was to go through the entire book of Jeremiah and find every time Judah and Israel is mentioned and determine if it was literal or not literal. I've already had one person do the whole assignment. They're already done with it, so that's done. The second assignment is to go through the entire book of Jeremiah and find out all the language that is what? Figurative or symbolic, all right? And then the third assignment now is very simple. Just outline Jeremiah chapter 1. There you go. And we basically kind of did it for you, right? Kind of did it for you. All right, any questions about Jeremiah chapter 1? Yeah, got it down. Experts? Yes? All right, there we go. All right. Oh, well, we won't do any review. We won't, we won't do any review, all right? So the next time we come together to talk, I'm not going to act like Jeremiah 1 never happened or never occurred or it did not, does not exist, okay? We'll go to chapter 2 unless we want to do some more work. Um, I did get an email today asking me, how, do we, how can we determine if what's Hebrew poetry? Like, because the book has poetry in it, and it does have history. So in, how do we determine when something is Hebrew poetry? Because we're looking at it in English. And the, the simple answer, I, won't, I'll, I will go into more detail, is you have to know the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. And then when, you, when you're reading, if you see those characteristics manifest themselves in a section in Jeremiah, then what do you stop to consider? Those maintain the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. 
I remember some of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. Well, we won't go through all of them all now, but okay. parallelism, all the different aspects of it. We've, we've covered it before, but we'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll kind of go through Jeremiah, and the first time we come to a section where I think that's Hebrew poetry, then we'll stop and we'll do an entire study on, on the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. But you've got to know the characteristics of it, right? you just got to go. That looks like Hebrew poetry. And then what can you do from that point? Look up 15 different sources to see how many people agree. Do people always agree when something is poetry? Sadly, they don't. Some people label Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as Hebrew poetry. 4 or 5. Others will be like, absolutely not. Right? Because if it's Hebrew poetry, then you don't argue you don't have to interpret it what way? Literally, there you go, see? But others would argue that uh, Genesis meets the requirements for Hebrew poetry. See, that, 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 that's where the issues start. But the key is, all we can do is try to figure out what are the key characteristics of it and see if a passage actually meets it. And then listen to those who say, that's poetry, and listen to those who say, it's not. But what can never drive, your, uh, what can never drive it is, Wait, if I say this is poetry, it's going to hurt my interpretation. You never do that. If it's poetry, it's poetry. You got to deal with it, even if it hurts your interpretation. You don't, go, you, don't, you don't choose the genre of literature to fit your interpretation, right? That's not, that's not how you do so. All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we thank you for Jeremiah chapter 1. There's much there for us to consider and meditate on, and I pray that... Everyone this week who is participating in the study will be reading this chapter over and over and over and giving it much thought and consideration. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...